Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 389 of the podcast. It's October 21st, 2020. My guest today is Elizabeth Swan. She is the co-author of the book, The Problem Solver's Toolkit, and she's co-host of a podcast called The Just-In-Time Cafe. As her bio says, she's been helping people successfully build their problem-solving muscles for over 30 years, and she loves what she does every single day. So today we discuss brainstorming, and we use an article she wrote for GoLeanSixSigma.com as the starting point, and it's titled, and the headline is addressed to green belts, and probably applies to everybody, Group Brainstorming is a Waste of Time. So why has classic brainstorming proven to be ineffective especially in the context of Lean, Six Sigma, or process improvement? And how can it be better given the reality of remote teams? Our conversation also veers into talking about Elizabeth's history in improv comedy and how lessons from the improv approach influence her to this day. So she says, structure sets you free. Why why is that in improv or Lean Six Sigma? We'll talk about that and more. So if you'd like to find links um, to her book, her podcast, that article, and more, you can go to leanblog.org slash 389. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Thank you for joining us here, Elizabeth. Thanks for having me, Mark. Thanks for having me. So, um, you know, before we get into topics of, of brainstorming and, and problem solving, I always like to ask guests to kind of think back to where and when and how you first got introduced to Lean Six Sigma or however it was being framed uh, when you got started with uh, with this type of work? Yeah, it's an interesting start. It wasn't necessarily terribly planned, but I was working for a firm called Rath & Strong. They actually started in 1935. They were involved in helping Japan rebuild uh, after World War II. And I learned from you know, people who wrote the book about just-in-time manufacturing or set-up production and uh, just early on. But I was helping them just fix their uh, some of their presentations, like the way they were um, in front of the room and how they were training and, you know, whether this stuff was um, accessible to other people. So I was working on those projects. And at the same time, this is like 1989, I started doing improv comedy hmm. and that was a serendipitous as well, but yeah. I just, I took a course and then uh, got invited into the troupe. So I ended up performing for a bunch of years with improv Boston um, oh, wow. and a few other troops. There was one that was a Canadian based one, international improv. And that was set up almost like a hockey game. You would jump into the rink and be, you know, two teams and, and the, uh, the fans would, vote on who won it but I think getting into improv it opened up my uh kind of mind in terms of what I wanted to do and the folks I was working with said well why don't you come with us because you're obviously good on your feet and not just design this training but help us work with groups so I dove in and kind of learned on my feet from a lot of great consultants um and got my start there and you know sort of kept going. I I won't bore you with the rest of it, but that's how it started, which is really interesting because I was, you know, I was intrigued by these guys and, uh, and then I was like, Oh, okay, well, I I could actually do this. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, 30 plus years later. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious because, and, and I've talked a little bit with, um, one of our team members at Kinexus, uh, Brie Hudock, who, um, has done a lot of improv, um, comedy work through college. And uh, I think she's still it was pre-pandemic, you know, was dabbling with that in person in Austin. And I, I'm, I'm curious, like, are there lessons you've learned about having like enough structure to then build off of when you do the performance? How much is that like improvement work where we may have structure, but yet in the moment we're having to figure it out and, and improv maybe with our improvement? Yeah, I mean, I use improv every day. And the what you're saying is what I say to myself and others, which is structure sets you free. So mm-hmm. having, you know, plan, do, check, act, having to make, having a structure and what working through means within that, you know, you've got the chance to 
go with what that process, that problem, that issue is driving. So being able to respond in the moment to, okay, that's different, but I know the structure I'm following. <laughs> I, I think that's key to success. And I love the way you put that structure sets you free. I mean, I think that connects to ideas of um, standardized work and, and sometimes where people misunderstand and they think standardized work is meant to be stifling. Mm. But I think there are a lot of situations where the right amount of structure um, allows us to be creative when, uh, when tap into creativity at times and being adaptable instead of being too rigid. I think your example of standard work is great because I agree with you. People think, oh, so you have to set up the way it's done. It's like, no, you have to always know the current best way. So mm-hmm. you're part of that. And if you see a way to make that better, your job is to immediately add and say, this is what I think we can do better. And so it's uh, like you say, that's creativity. It should always be a creative process. Yeah. And um, yeah, when uh, improv, of course, is not scripted. And, you know, a lot of healthcare work in particular um, can't be scripted to the level of detail of automotive assembly, where, you know, in a car plant, you have known work that repeats predictably in 50 second cycles, but healthcare still has applications for, for standard work and knowing roles and responsibilities and um, having enough structure to react to what might be an unheard of um, type of incident patient type that comes into um, the ER. So I think, you know, I think there's a phrase I learned from um, Toyota mentors, um, enabling bureaucracy is Mm. one phrase that they've used, which I think is interesting to think about. I like that. I think that is a, more concrete way of saying structure sets you free. Yeah, but we don't like the word word bureaucracy just sets people off though. So I I think structure sets you free is probably, to me, that's a better way of saying it, I think. (laughs) Um, So I'm curious also, um, you know, we're going to talk here a lot about brainstorming. Can you tell us more? I always like to talk to authors about their Mm. books as well. Um, The Problem Solvers Toolkit, if you can, sort of, you know, talk uh, about the book. And I'm always interested also how it came to be. Mm. The, the thrust of, you know, my career and Tracy's, and Tracy is my colleague and co-author, has always been how do we translate what this process is? What is this structure that is going to help you get where you want to go? How do we translate so that that is accessible to as many people as possible? And I found that when I was, you know, learning early on that I found that my own process of trying to understand any, any particular tool or concept, I really had to break it down for myself. And especially when it got into, you know, bigger concepts, Uh, like hypothesis testing or something, but I wanted to, you know, I I didn't even take statistics in school. I will admit right out there. So really had to dive in, make sure that I understood things to a granular level such that I can present it to somebody else in a way that was immediately understandable. So I, I, we, we always play the role of translator because there, there can be Uh, an aspect to our world of continuous improvement that can get a little geeky, can maybe uh, favor the mechanical engineer, you know? And so coming from the English major side of the house, it's like, okay, well, how does this make sense to me and others like me? So this book was a way of saying, okay, if you had to boil it down, here's a structure, here's uh, some examples. And whereas I think a lot of people, uh, it was like, well, here's the tool, here's how you use it. And we looked at it and said, what are all the ways this goes wrong? <laughs> you know? So we wanted to really speak to people about this is not, you know, this is not rocket science, but it doesn't mean, you know, right off the bat, how to do this. So here's all the ways. And so we, we talked about it as a journey because we thought, and we, you've, I'm sure you've talked about it too, that this is, these are all journeys Uh, when you're doing this process improvement, we said, so you're on a road trip, you know, you're on this journey, you're on a road trip and you're going to hit some potholes. 
So we wanted to say, what are the detours? How do you manage the potholes? And, and then what if you wanted to like know even more? So we said that you could go sightseeing. You want to know more at standard work? Okay, here's some sightseeing you could go on and, and learn more. And, and so the, the idea of taking this journey and making it literal, you're on this road trip and we could take someone just 35 basic tools, you know, because there's compendiums out there. Like here's a hundred things you can do. It's like, let's just focus on the things that, you know, will get you there get you on this on this journey so yeah. i don't know if that was if that no, helps that, with the yeah. thinking behind it yeah that ma- that makes sense thinking of a journey or uh, i've become partial to the word practicing over over the years so you know i want to bring it back to you know you use this phrase uh, building problem solving muscles mm. right so for people who are watching video um, in, in this room where I sit, it's partly my office, but my wife, not while I'm doing podcasts, but she practices yoga in here mm-hmm. and she's been practicing. She's been at this for a very long time. She makes it look easy where, you know, then the times I have tried yoga, I find it intimidating. It's challenging. And I, I think there, there are interesting parallels maybe to problem solving to throw it back to you, where if somebody reads about problem solving or sees somebody leading um, some sort of problem solving activity that might, they, it might look easy, but that person has practiced and built that muscle over time. I'm, I'm, it's not so much a question as it is a, a thought to get your reactions from. No, I like it. I love that. And you're absolutely on target that it is a practice and to build those muscles, you do have to practice if, even if it's, even if it's yoga, mm-hmm. <laughs> it feels like, you know, so foreign, but yeah, things feel foreign until you uh, play with it and do it. Um, and I think that you have to have that to build the muscles. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and it starts with that, um, that first step of using light weights, if you will, and working your way up like the surest path, I'm sure for someone to hurt themselves is to watch a video of an Olympic weightlifter and then say, oh, okay, well, I studied what they did. I'm going to go try that. You've got to work your way up. Um, Yeah. And I think, um, you know, we initially, the other other springboard for the book was people were taking our online training and they were like, yeah, but I want something tangible to hold. And the other aspect was, okay, so they, you, you want what you said, you want people to practice. So making things, um, accessible and say, okay, well, here's how it happens in this little place called the Bahama Bistro. Yeah. And you, and you think, oh, well, I've been in restaurants. I've seen, you know, what it takes to, so then it, it, to practice, it doesn't feel so foreign. Like, oh, I know what that means. Okay. I could measure how long it takes for me to get an order, or I could look at the way they're building my sub as I, you know, go through this line. Yeah. Yeah. So then, I mean, there's, there's also, you know, we've talked about yoga and weightlifting. There's an obvious parallel, I guess, to the martial arts. So maybe let, let me ask, like, what, what are your thoughts? Um, and, and as a, admittedly somebody, I, I don't label the work that I do lean six Sigma or six Sigma. And um, you know, it's just different backgrounds, different training, um, different origin stories. But um, I I was going to ask you, because this is something we don't often talk about here in the podcast, the different levels of belts and, and, and how things are structured, or at least, you know, with your work at Goli and Six Sigma, how do you structure things to kind of progress through those levels of belts? So that it's not super intimidating. You don't create a master black belt overnight, (laughs) But, but what are some of the steps and, and, and can you kind of talk about how you help people progress along the sure. way without being intimidated and scared sure. off or hurt? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's funny. The belts came in uh, not so much. I think Bill Smith was the originator of, of Six Sigma and Michael Harry came up with the belt levels. And it's almost like they're, they're both kind of a marketing gimmick, like, wow, I could be a black belt. I could be a green belt. But I, for, for, me, what's helpful is it gets, it helps me understand what level of training and practice are you interested in? Do you need? And uh, when we started it, we said, okay, let's put a eight hour yellow belt, right? So that's eight hours of here's, you know, process of improvement, start to finish. Here's a case study. 
it's a bistro. We put that online for free. Like, okay, let's just help people get rolling. And for a lot of people, that's all they needed. And they just started practicing, you know, doing a project saying, okay, if that's what the bistro did, I'll try this in my, you know, uh, admin process. And then uh, once we had created that it was like, okay, well, if you want to then uh, run teams and if you want to uh, take your learning to the next level, well, let's expand that and take everything you learned in Yellow Bell and let's do more dives and open up uh, the, the toolkit. And let's take that out to, you know, I think it's 32 hours, 34 hours, something like that. And let's really um, challenge you more to go, go try uh, getting a voice of the customer, go, you know, uh, describe what is standard work for you. So um, uh, working that, uh, that those levels from uh, enough to be dangerous into, okay, now I want to just be a, a team lead and get rolling. And then black belts, uh, I think some of that is driven by folks with uh, who really are getting into it and want to make that that's what I do, right? I want to be going on this track. I want to really enhance my ability to uh, do the more advanced. We sort of separated out. I think some people would throw the entire toolkit into green belt. We'll pull like really deep dives on um, MSA measurement systems analysis and uh, hypothesis testing and design of experiments will say, okay, well, those are really tactics that you don't need as often. So let's reserve those for folks who really want to educate themselves at a higher level. Mm-hmm. Um, and master black belt, that is really experience-based. You have got to be someone who has run a lot of projects. You've been coaching a lot of folks. And so that's not something I think you can just go learn online. That's really uh, you're sort of building in that direction, but we, we have come around to like, okay, champions need guidelines. If you're going to try to help leverage folks that have had all this training, then, you know, here's some things that help you with leader standard work and uh, becoming someone who drives fear out of the organization, more of those, uh, the ways to create that culture that can uh, support all the process improvement efforts. And then way back at the beginning, we created, we sort of extracted an hour from the, and called it white belt and said, okay, that if you just want to know what the heck are my people talking about? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and so here you go. Here's like an outline of what it is. So is that helpful? Yeah, yeah it is. Um, so we're going to take that deeper dive into problem solving and, and topics around brainstorming. And I'll, I'll make sure we link to this in the show notes, uh, an article that you wrote. Um, I think it, it's, it's maybe addressed at green belts, the way the title is written, but maybe also addressed more broadly. Um, pretty blunt, direct title. Group brainstorming is a waste of time. <laughs> and that'll, that'll catch people's attention, right? Because I mean, I, I, I think back to even um, at some point as a child being taught brainstorming methods in school and some of the um, tenets of brainstorming, like, you know, don't criticize ideas, wild ideas are okay, build upon the ideas of others. It's like this, if you will, I know it's like a group improv (laughs) activity. Um, but I, I, from from your standpoint, I mean, why? Um, what what did you learn in researching and, and writing this article about this idea that brainstorming is a waste of time, or that there's maybe a better approach? Yeah, it's kind of fascinating to me on many many levels because I've been dabbling in here for a long time. Obviously, I've been a facilitator, a coach, a teacher, um, and I also worked for a brief time with a company called Idea Champions. And they did a lot of strategic planning, but part of what we really focused on was ideation techniques. How do we get groups to come up with better ideas? And I look back on it now and I think, oh, because we needed techniques. We needed like, you know, back to our structure sets you free. How do we line people up such that they get those wild ideas that they unleash? And what I discovered was, like you said, you were, 
doing this. Uh, you, you were aware of this as a, as a young guy. And I looked and um, Alex Osborne, who coined the term brainstorming, uh, this comes from, he coined it in 1939. So we've been, we've been hearing this for over 80 years and it's really attractive. We, we all gravitate and go, yeah, like what's, what's not to love about don't criticize who wants to be criticized, you know, like, and be freewheeling and, and groups that all sounds so great. So I was all in and, but I kept bumping up against two things. One was, I wasn't always overly impressed with what was, you know, appearing on the, um, on the flip charts. Like in, you know, in, in like, what way or why? Oh, quality of what people were saying. Uh, I felt like, uh, you know, I'm a good facilitator. I, my improv background was great. I, but I felt like often it was kind of a push. Like, how do we push past some of these pedestrian ideas and get something that's a little more elegant? And the what I found, I found a couple things. One was that there were these studies uh, way back, like 10 years after um, Osborne wrote a book called uh, Your Creative Power, talked about the squad brainstorming. You were supposed to get... 50% more better ideas, you know, as a group than individuals. And in, in um, just 10 years later, there was a Yale study that they took 48 people. They did, you know, 12 groups of four. So the group brainstorming and then a control group of just 48 singles people. And these are guys, this is, this is 59. So, and I looked at Yale didn't go co-ed until um, uh, 69. So it was just 10 years later, but anyway, so these are all guys, but, they had a. Uh, they were tasked to solve a traffic congestion problem, and they. It's funny because they had judges. They had three ways to qualify the ideas. You know, were they um, the total ideas produced, the total number of unique ideas produced, and they had three separate measures of quality. Like, were these good ideas? Mm-hmm. And like, overwhelmingly, the individuals performed better than the group. And then I thought, okay, that was, you know, and it's a surprise. And it was also a surprise that was 10 years after Osborne published the, your creative power. And, but it's just gets swept aside. Brainstorming is just too attractive. The group brainstorm is just too attractive. So, and there's other studies, they keep coming back to it. And I think the main thing they came up against was something that you'll relate to. It's, it's production blocking. It's saying only one person can voice an idea at a time. It's theory of constraints, right? Mm-hmm. You know, back to Goldrat, it's saying, you know, you, you just can't get that many if you've got a group. So uh, so looking at that, um, and that people have other theories on what the, what the other problems were, but um, I, when I was researching this, because the other thing I found was... Um, and I got this one from my group at Idea Champions, a guy named Mitch Ditkoff, who's still uh, the CEO there. Uh, he taught me to ask the group before I did brainstorming, you know, where are you? What are you doing when you get your best ideas? And I would hear, and I'd write it on the flip chart, you know, in the shower, walking the dog, driving my car, uh, eating, you know, whatever. It was like all these things. And, and I would always joke at the end, none of these said conference room. Nobody said at work at my desk. And that was kind of a preliminary when I was back at Idea Champions to, okay, so we're going to use these techniques. We're going to use anti-solution. We're going to use all these different te- techniques to help you. What, what, what is that when you say anti-solution? I don't know that. One. Anti-solution is uh, built on the fact that we are critical thinkers. Uh, I always think of my little nephew. My mother was bringing some a, like a desk lamp in the door one time and he looked at her and he goes and he's just staring at it and he goes I know how to break that like that's how we're, we're built we know how to break things we know how things won't work so what when you take anti-solution you say what's the opposite of what I'm trying to do if I'm trying to get patients to doctors from door to dock as fast as possible my anti-solution is built on how do I uh, make it take the longest possible time for patients to get from door to doctor. And, and then people are freewheeling. They're like, Oh, I know. And you get this whole list in a, in a nanosecond and people are laughing. It's funny. You know, don't leave that list up because then people go, Oh my God, that's what we do. Like that's, (laughs) this is horrible. Where did this come from? So, 
But anti-solution will let you cut loose, but then you've got to reverse those and say, okay, where would we go? What's the reverse of that? But again, I sometimes felt like those are very pedestrian. Okay, well then don't do that. Like, that's not, so I don't, that, anyway, that's one of the techniques. So once I looked at, um, I, I, so I was looking at, the, looking at uh, different reasons why we don't uh, come up with better or more ideas in groups. And that's when I, I stumbled on this guy, Neil Herman, and he did a study that was published in Scientific American in 97. And he looked at the different uh, brainwaves, you know, the frequency of brainwaves. And he said, there's, you know, there's four levels. You've got beta waves when you're in a conversation, you know, doing what we're doing, right? We're, we're going back and forth. These are beta waves. Mm -hmm. Alpha is a moment of reflection or meditation when you're trying to do your yoga. Um, or maybe not. And then theta is when you are doing something rote, you're showering, you're walking the dog, you're, and you know what those moments are like, your brain is kind of free to go. Uh, and then delta is a deep sleep. Hmm. So his studies showed that we do our best thinking, we come up with the best ideas in those moments of theta waves. So when we're doing those rote tasks, um, you know, you often see people who can, who can knit while they're, you know, while they're talking and there's all these things that you can do without really having to focus on them, but somehow having your, your physical body, uh, engaged frees up your mind. Have, so, have you ever had somebody in a workshop, sorry to interrupt, um, who, mm-hmm. who knits while they're sitting in class? I've said that happened once or twice. And what did you say? Well, the usual, I, I think when it's happened, um, that person was sort of upfront apologetic or sort of saying like, I, I, the, I the, the, you know, I'm not doing the knitting because I'm not paying attention, but it helps me focus. I'm like, okay, well, hey, you know yourself to each your own. Maybe I'll ask for a scarf if the class goes well. <laughs> Honestly, yeah, if it's a week-long class, I think you should at least get a scarf out of that. But yeah, it probably helped her focus. So I'm sorry, interrupting doesn't help with. <laughs> yes, it does. You had a good idea. So uh, that was a good thing to throw in there. Cause I think you're right. I think that is for some people a focusing mechanism. And, and I think uh, I've heard this from people who have uh, ADHD, uh, uh, whatever that is, deficit attention deficit disorder that um, they want to be, if they can be physically engaged, like have a job that makes them move, you know, landscape work, do carpentry that is when uh that sort of it calms their minds mm. that they find that as, as a, like you said it's a focusing mechanism so that's interesting yeah. but reading uh herman's study it was like oh that answers what i saw on the flip chart that's why everybody said that's where they got their best ideas so and another thing that triggered this was the was the pandemic like okay now we can't be in that room together you know zoom calls we're all getting used to it but it's not necessarily a great platform for everyone chiming in. It's, you know, it's, there's a lot of stutter steps and sorry, were you speaking and, and all that. So, you know, how do you get that, that uh, group brainstorming? And the other thing that really was challenging for me was, but we want involvement. Like, you know, that the people who can solve the problems are the people who do the work. So we want to include them. We want to include uh, stakeholders and people in the process with solving the, the process problems. So this idea of like only going to individuals is not appealing. I see why group brainstorming is so appealing, but what it what struck me was, this is another thing that's happened to me because I'm in an online company that is completely remote and we have no central office. Yeah. So we use a tool. I think uh, we've, changed over time we had trello for a while now we have asana and without making it a standard work it became standard work to when asking people for information we give them a date and say by friday uh we want to you know i want to know all your thoughts around how do we either solve a problem or you know, what books would you like to recommend that we all should read together? Like, what is the, what is the task at hand? And then each of us gets a task assigned to us with a due date. And then it says, you know, put all your ideas in this mother list, like right here. So everyone can see what people are adding. 
And I loved it. I was like, oh man, I get time to think about it. I can see what other people are adding. I can see what's done and I can keep going. And then by Friday, we've got this brilliant list of whatever it is. So I found that to me became an impetus for, okay, how do we work that into the brainstorming process? Because then I still want, we still have a discussion. We still get together as a group, but now we've got this great way to take advantage of that theta thinking for, you know, lack of a better. What, and what I hear you describing seems like sort of a hybrid model where you can try to have maybe the best of both worlds where, um, breaking off or giving people time may help um, the Myers-Briggs introverts, um, mm. people who are otherwise um, shy or intimidated by the setting um, to, to, to come up and, and submit ideas on their own without losing the dynamic of being able to um, discuss or debate or, you know, kind of consider which of those different ideas looking at a quantity of ideas, how do we evaluate which ones, uh, which one or one seem worth going forward um, in, through a testing phase? You know, I, I, I think it's I, an idea or a different question. I think is really interesting um, when I've worked with teams is how do we know if an idea is a good idea or not? Sometimes something that seems like a great idea turns out not to be so in practice. And sometimes the idea of like, eh, we're not sure, but, wouldn't hurt anything probably to try. Sometimes those counterintuitively prove out to be better ideas. So and I know in your article, you touched on quantity versus quality. I mean, quantity is easier to measure than it is to gauge quality sometimes. What, what are your thoughts? I absolutely agree with you on that one. And you brought up another, another great point, which is getting those quieter folks to say something, the introverts. And that's something the facilitator used to work hard at. So now, like you're saying, it's a hybrid mechanism. Now this asynchronous process allows people, all people, regardless of their uh, introverted or extroverted nature to get the ideas in. Um, So that solves, or that I think goes a long way to solving that piece of it. Then the quality. And that was interesting because that's something I was poking at with that initial study because they had three measures of quality. I was like, how did you? Because they had to have a judging panel because mm. that was tricky because you're saying like, well, how do you know? Who is the panel? Who's the panel? Yeah. And how are they judging the, the quality of these ideas? And it may have been, you know, this was traffic congestion. So they may have had, well, uh, this wouldn't, you know, these, they had engineers or they had people who had solved it to say, you know, this would work, this wouldn't work. But it isn't like a um, an algorithm proof. I mean, uh, what do you call it? what was the algebra proof? You know, it wasn't like, okay, this either works or it doesn't work. Right. Um, well, one thing that helped, helps me. Um, and I, I have two thoughts around this. Cause I think the quality issue is, is a hard answer. It's a hard thing to answer, but I have uh, two things in mind that make a difference to me in the quality. And one of them is uh, based on this other study uh, and this is, this approaches that first rule of no criticism. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when, when you were saying, okay, now we get back together and that's where we can have this discussion. What's, what's critical is to have that discussion that the was the UC Berkeley 2003 study. And they said, actually debate conditions produced better ideas. And again, I'm not entirely sure how they were judging the quality, but I do know that, um, one was a really interesting article I read about uh, Pixar, and that was in uh, the, the guy Andrew Stanton was the director on most of this string of hits. I mean, if you think about the three Toy Stories, you know, Finding Nemo, uh, Wall-E, and and there's no there's no movie um, studio that had a string of twelve straight hits. That's just not something that happens in Hollywood, you know, there's so many yes men around. It's like, well, then, you know, invariably you get a bomb. So the, the article was looking at their process. What was different about Pixar's process? And what they did was this really rigorous seven rounds of critique where everybody got to say, don't buy it. What about this? Don't get it. You know, and just like you had withering critiques. So basically debate conditions in their uh, development process. And then 
um, in the 90s, Disney tapped Andrew Stanton to do a live action movie for them called John Carter. Mm. I think the budget was like 300 million plus. A bomb. And in the article, they asked him about his process. Did not use Hmm. the seven rounds of critique. So to me, what's really important is to have those debate conditions, but then back to that idea of no criticism. It's really appealing to have no criticism. Like, you know, who, who wants to be criticized, but uh, the tech, another technique I got back um, with uh, Mitch at idea champions is called, likes concerns suggestions Mm -hmm. and it forces you to start with your like so back to critical thinking i know how to break that you have to like hold that for a second and say all right what do you like about it so now you've got to think about the elements of this idea that do work that have potential so you've got to do that that form of critical thinking and then you get to say your concerns say you have up to three concerns my concerns are uh, but for every concern, you've got to have a suggestion. So mm-hmm. now you are building on that person's idea. So I found that process to be a great conduit to quality because now you're, you're getting into this engaged discussion of how do we, how do we get a better idea out of that? Mm-hmm. So that to me is a good guideline for, for pushing toward quality. And then I think to me, it's it, again, I have to decide how do we test these? You know, if we've kind of convened as a group on these are the possibilities, you're going to you're going to still have some kind of a consensus around. All right, let's let's try this one. Yeah. The word um, concern uh, kind of sparks some different thoughts. Just kind of delve into language a little bit here. And like you said, your your background is in English uh, studies. Right. So you probably don't mind the detour. In words, um, I mean, you think about um, healthcare settings and training that I've gone through where employees are not just lectured, you should speak up if you think there's a quality problem um, that's occurring or could occur, but they're taught how they're taught a structure and a framework for how to speak up. And part of that structure, um, this, this is from an organization called Life Wings that teaches uh, a methodology that's often called team steps uh, more broadly. They, they, they coach nurses or whoever it might be, let's say, in the operating room. Um, let's say if I were addressing you, I would say, um, Dr. Swan, I'm making you a doctor now. Love so it. I'm, I'm addressing you by name. I'm getting your attention. I'm being respectful. I have a concern. Dr. Swan, I have a concern. And the thing that they teach is that stating, I have a concern is a factually true statement. If I say I have a concern, it's hard for you to say, no, you don't. It really kind of only begs the question of, well, what is the concern? And then as you discuss, it could turn out that the concern is unfounded, but sort of like in a lean environment where you're thanked for pulling the and on cord. You know, you know that, that framing of, of concern as opposed to saying, hey, hey, doc, you're being an idiot here or something that would really... <laughs> be disrespectful or, or drive defensiveness. I, I think that so it's interesting to think about how saying I have a concern about that idea. Again, seems like, okay, factually true statement. Now let's carry the discussion on from there. That's great. I think you're right in how much language matters. And I think the there's feedback models that follow that as well, where it's, you know, when you do X, I feel why and my suggestion is we do Z or you, you change it to Z. And again, it's what you're saying that you cannot refute how a person feels mm-hmm. and you cannot refute that someone has a concern. You could address it. You could say, actually, it's not a problem because of why. The, the uh, concern could be grounded in a lack of information and we can resolve that information gap but it's not threatening. And that's um, the goal is to get people to go in a positive direction, right? So you, you want people to come with you. So you definitely don't want to, you know, start (laughs) casting. (laughs) Why are you doing that? What's wrong with you? Uh, And we learned that early on in continuous improvement that how we 
address folks and how we address issues can mean the path to solving it or a complete shutdown of any opportunity to do better. You know, that, that, as you say, that words matter. So, so I'm tempted then to bring it back um, to the practice of improv and the structure and the lessons there. And again, I just, I've seen improv troops and I know it's just a, a smidge. I don't know much about this, but one thing I've heard and I would ask you maybe to elaborate on is the idea of yes. And mm. if you're doing a improv scene with another individual, that's one of the things that's taught to help keep things going. Right. Yeah. And I would say the opposite of that. And this is when I first started learning. And it's a, it's a very basic technique and you do a lot of practice. So thinking about improv and structure that what's underneath that is you practice how to follow the structures. So we would practice. Yes. And almost in, if you've ever played basketball, we used to do these layup lines where one person is going up, takes the layup, next person grabs the ball, goes to the back of the layup line. So we had these layup lines and one person would offer, make the offer, you know, it's the, in improv, your lines are offers. So you say, you're looking at this other person and you would say, I see you've come back from your journey uh, with only one leg or whatever it is. We, we often try to make an offer that gives the other person some kind of characteristic. We call it a gift, gives them something to work with, right? And so uh, the other person, uh, the opposite of yes and might be, uh, no, I didn't, you know, look it, I can dance a jig. Like um, you could refuse the answer, which we call blocking, and you might get an immediate laugh, but you've killed the scene. Wow. You've, you've given the person nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. So yes and uh, takes the offer and ups it. Uh, yes, and I got the crown you asked me to get. You know, so now, oh, my God, you've given this other person a huge gift. You've given them a crown. You know, there's some royalty. There's something. And they have somewhere to go. And that is a a basic tenet. So, uh, yes, and. And I think that is also built into me now when I hear people talking when I'm working in a class, when someone offers something up. I'm looking for what can I do? How can I build on the idea this person just put forward, like where, where can we, what else, where can we go with that? How does that forward this, um, this project, this, this uh, effort. So it is, it is built in now. Mm-hmm. And, and you, you make me think of, um, you know, short-term results versus long-term progress. Toyota famously says to make decisions based on the long term. And in the scenario you were talking about there, like, yeah, getting a laugh in the moment, if you're gauging the quality of what you said, you're like, okay, good. I got a laugh. This is a comedy troupe. I did. I'm doing my job, but then killing the scene and ultimately having um, fewer laughs and a less enjoyable experience kind of thinks, uh, makes me think of moments and again, I share some of this, maybe, not maybe, I've been guilty of this as an engineer of those moments where I'm like, I'm right. And I said that thing and I just, I refuted what you just proposed and I know I'm right, but what did that really accomplish other than in the moment feeling good of like, well, yeah, I was right. It's not the same as getting a laugh, but it makes me think of like when we need to um, think about the longer term of like, what, what, what did I accomplish by shooting yeah. something down and being right. This is yeah. And so I think it is a similar sort of scene ender that, that, that leaves the person has nowhere to go. And you don't realize it often until reflecting, reflecting later that, Oh, that ended that conversation or that ended uh, that effort. And you're mindful on, on, a, on stage of not just uh, your fellow actors. How do I include them? Uh, uh, invite people into scenes. You're also mindful of when you said long-term, if you said early on something about the ball, right? There's this, the ball that's going to happen. Well, it's then get to it, get to the ball. Don't stand around on stage being a talking head, you know, like, well, there's going to be a ball. Is there going to be a ball? Yes. It's going to be big. It's going to be big. Yes. There's going to be people there. Yes. It's like, no, just make it happen. 
So I think that's another thing that I love that the bias is for let's go do that. Let's try that and see what that ball ends up looking like. And that is also appealing to me in the continuous improvement world of, okay, let's go, let's go try that out. Let's go make that happen. Um, Let's not keep sort of churning about how it might or might not work. And and you mentioned reflection. Is that something that would be done at the end of an improv exercise or at the end of a show, that specific reflection cycle? We would get, we would have um, reflections maybe on the next, like there's, I've forgotten how how often we met to practice, but the next practice we do a, a take sort of take stock of the show, especially was I, when I started out and I was in sort of a, a junior troupe and it was, okay, here's some things. Let me give you notes. And actually it's funny because when I was getting notes early on, uh, the, the uh, teacher initially would say, okay, that seems really good. But, and so she would immediately jump to the notes. And I said to her, you know what? It really is hard to hear that that scene was any good. <laughs> When you get to the butt right away, I said, give it a second. Give, I, I sort of taught her likes, concerns, suggestions, like right. let revel a little bit in what worked so people can take in and repeat that, but then say your concerns with our performance. Like you, you walked right through a bar, you know, you ignored the, the prop that somebody put up there, you know, and it's all imaginary, but, um, or you, you sat there talking about the ball for, you know, five minutes there. And, and so, yeah, that was, uh, you get time to sort of sit with it. And then it was like, okay, let's look at how we could do better. Very yeah. Cool. I can't believe that all that happened. We, uh, we did, we did improvised musicals, if you can imagine it. So inventing songs on the spot in a style of like, it would be like a Dylan song or it would be a gospel tune. <laughs> like looking back, I'm like, how did we ever do that? That often happens um, to connect it back to continuous improvement. Sometimes people look and say, how did we ever do that (laughs) when they've solved some big problem or made a really large and sustainable change within an organization? Yeah. How did that happen? Because many, many things came together for that to to happen. You're right. So as uh, as we wrap up here, um, can you tell the audience a little bit more about GoLeanSixSigma.com? Sure. We got together eight years ago with the idea of, hey, what if we put some of the stuff we do in classrooms and workshops online? And I have to say, initially, I thought, well, you, we don't. Why would you do that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I liked, I re- had respect for my colleagues, but I was like, I don't know if this is going to work. So we, we, we did it and I really had to put myself through what, you know, instructional design, like how does this work? How do you engage online? How does this, you know, make a dent in, in the way someone views processes? Uh, so that uh, we, we, um, we initially put out, as I said, that sort of eight hours free yellow belt and said, okay, let's see if people enjoy this and if it works. And, and they did. So we just kept building. And so now we have this suite of online uh, trainings and we still keep looking at, um, you know, what works and what to, what to shift. Uh, And recently we've, especially with COVID people had to give up, you know, their onsite workshops, at least for the time being. And so we've really upped the amount of blended workshops because you know having that guide having someone to talk to you after you've gone out as you say and practiced right Mm -hmm. I practiced this I I did a high level map and I don't know if I'm doing this right so then we get together online and we have breakout groups and we people can hear each other's struggles and and so that's been a really nice I think um if if there's nice things coming out of this pandemic just that focus of how do we uh, help folks uh, bridge that gap between getting that face-to-face help w- and guidance and being able to go learn what they want to learn on their own. You can go study a concept, learn about standard work, mm-hmm. uh, take it in online and then say, okay, now let's talk about what's that really mean. So um, that's been our, our latest effort aside from just trying to get the, get the word out, you know, as you do just like, let's, what can we, uh, how can we help people know how this can make a huge difference in, you know, in your case, uh, focusing in on healthcare, mm-hmm. uh, we've done a lot 
in government. I mean, just like these are things that affect all our lives. How do we uh, make a better place for us? So that's been the focus. So I hope people will go check that out. Go lean six sigma.com. Um, I, I'm, you know, subscribed to your email newsletter and there are always, um, you know, case studies and, and, and things for people to read and check out. And I, and I will say like the visual style of everything is, uh, is a lot of fun, you know, kind of, when you talk about the, 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 the Bahama, what, what's the cafe called again? The, the Bahama Bistro. Bahama Bistro Cafe. And, and just the, the drawings and the artwork and everything is um, inviting. And I think earlier you used the word accessible. Um, so I think that's, that's really cool to see that style. That's so nice to hear, Mark. I agree with you. I think we have an awesome graphic team, but it made it approachable in the same way we hope the language did too. But yeah, and so nice to hear that say it draws you in. Yeah, it does. So um, I want to thank again, our guest has been uh, Elizabeth Swan. She's the Chief Learning Experience Officer at GoLeanSixSigma.com. I encourage you to not only check out the website, but uh, her book. And you, you said it was co-authored with Tracy O'Rourke, mm-hmm. The Problem Solver's Toolkit. Um, last question, put you on the spot. Is there another book in you? That's the other thing I always like to ask authors. Are you going to do another? Tracy said, yes, she wants to, she just said this to me the other day. It's funny you ask. She wants to do an equally accessible book about coaching, Hmm. coaching folks through their building, their problem solving muscles. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see. Keep stay tuned, Mark. Okay. Good. And then I should have mentioned, um, right up front, but I, I will mention and thank you again, um, for for taking part in both writing a blog post for and being part of the panel um, discussion webinar um, that uh, we, we did called uh, Root Cause Racism. And so I will put links to your blog post and um, a video of your remarks from um, that, that webinar in the show notes. I apologize for, now I should have asked you about that here during our session, but maybe we can do uh, another podcast episode at some point. And, but again, I'll encourage people to go um, check out what Elizabeth had to say there in those formats. Thank you so much. And yes, that was an honor to be part of that. And you did a wonderful job hosting that. So yes, thank you for bringing that up. Okay. Well, sure. Thanks for being part of that. And again, we'll give a shout out to our friend DeAndre Wardell who really had the vision and the Go DeAndre to invite you and, and all the others uh, to be part of that, uh, Elizabeth. So um, people can find that at leanblog.org slash root cause racism. And again, I'll have other links in the show notes, but Elizabeth, thank you so much. I'm, I'm, I didn't know, I guess this is uh, yeah, podcast is sort of like improv. I didn't know it was going to veer in that direction of talking about improv, but I found that really interesting. So thank you for sharing that and everything else. Loved it. Thanks so much for having me, Mark. This is awesome. Thanks. Thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.